Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. A black boy dead in the street, shot by a white policeman. This was an execution. This was an assassination. It was four and a half hours before they finally removed the body. It's like they left the body out there to, as a warning for us. To this day, there are people who blame Ferguson Market for Michael Brown's death. I want your hands all the way off because this is how he was when he got shot. Yeah. When he got assassinated. Yeah. When he got murdered. Everybody gets to go home, we stay black, homie. Ferguson is a microcosm of this country. White cop, black kid, absolutely race. Race played a significant part of the reaction. What happened in Ferguson was more about America, the very same America that would explode in 2020. Where every black was George Floyd, and every cop was Derek Chauvin. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. That voice you just heard is that of Shelby Steele, who has been producing influential books and articles about race for decades. His latest project, with his filmmaker son Eli Steele, is What Killed Michael Brown, a film that looks at the August 9, 2014 shooting of Michael Brown Jr., an 18-year-old black man by police officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri. In the popular imagination, that shooting and the violence that followed was seen as a symbol of American racism. Yet, as Steele notes in his film, Wilson was actually cleared of criminal wrongdoing. Despite enormous political pressure to bring Wilson up on criminal charges, the U.S. Department of Justice concluded that Wilson had shot Brown in self-defense. In his new film, Shelby and Eli Steele examine how the events of August 2014 have been contorted to suit political agendas in a way that grimly foreshadowed the race politics of 2020. This week, I spoke with Shelby Steele by phone about his movie. Here are excerpts from our conversation. In the film, you talk about the difference between poetic truth and objective truth. And much of the film the narrative is driven by the tension between those two things. Can you tell me what you mean by the poetic truth of an incident or a controversy? We were attracted to look in more depth into the Michael Brown shooting because it seems such a vivid example of poetic truth, what I call poetic truth, which is the version of an event that serves really one's need for power. Something happens when you then talk about it to others, you modify what, what really happened, what the objective truth was. You modify it to serve your political point of view, your ideology, your need for power, and so forth. It's put to a purpose, to an end, to accomplish something for you, rather than give you the objective truth. On the other side of the narrative, is there a poetic truth about the United States itself as a land of equality and perfect freedom that is part of the problem? 
The poetic truth is a justification. I will come up with a poetic truth when I'm trying to justify something that I already know I want to do, grab for power, run for office. To justify that, I will give you a version of the truth that is my poetic license, my molding it to serve whatever it is that I want. The idea of America as sort of a poetic vision is different than that. It's not a manipulation. It's an aspiration. Yes, an ideal. That's very different than the poetic truth, which is a much more cynical reshaping of reality in a way that really serves me in some very concrete way. A shocking part of your movie where you're talking about somebody who the point where he was turned off of the Michael Brown protests is when he heard somebody say, F Martin Luther King. It brought home the fact that the urge to construct a poetic truth about what was happening required people to choose between their poetic truth about Michael Brown and the whole civil rights idea of equality and racial equality and aspiring toward integration and harmony. Is this a shocking thing to hear people reject someone like Martin Luther King in such explicit terms? Yes and no. When you look at the protests that surrounded the Michael Brown shooting, and you look at much of the protests that happened all across America this past summer, my take on that is that it was driven by the fact that young blacks no longer, ironically, suffer the kind of victim, racial victimization and persecution that their forebears did, people of the King generation, people like my parents and so forth. They truly lived in a segregated society that persecuted them, limited their possibilities, tried to stunt their lives in every way possible throughout their life. And so their movement had the profundity and the authenticity of genuine, true rebellion against a corrupt authority. And so in that sense, it was a beautiful thing. The protests that we see this past summer, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and so forth, other groups like that, seems to me driven by a sense among many young Blacks of inauthenticity. The reality is Blacks don't remotely suffer in the way people of my parents' generation suffered. That's over with. You're free to do anything you want, make any kind of a life you want, become a billionaire, become the president of the United States. Then if Blackness and Black pride is defined as struggling with victimization, young people today feel they're not victimized. So they're, again, struggling, I think, with what I call the angst of inauthenticity. They feel very thinly Black, like they're not really, truly Black. They're not the real deal. And so their protest is really much more driven by that than by any racism in the society. Where's the racism? It tells me that, again, their larger problem has to do with living with being made accountable to a black identity grounded in victimization that they're never going to know anything about. And yet they want to identify as black, want to be proud and so forth. And so they're caught in this sort of space where they have no way out. And so poetic truth becomes a favorite mechanism, I think, of this generation to sort of retell the Michael Brown shooting as though it's an instance of horrific racism. White cop shoots seven shots in the body of a black teenager. It duplicates that ugly history. Then for at least a moment, dwelling inside that poetic truth, they can feel authentically black. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that until I saw your movie, I kind of casually assumed that 
the Michael Brown narrative was the poetic narrative. That is to say, it was a racist incident, kind of a murder in cold blood. Despite all the research you've done and this movie you've put together, do people express shock or even offense when you tell them that the Michael Brown shooting was not an act of racism? As I say it, it feels like a forbidden thing to say. Well, you're getting right into the area of our big cultural divide, our polarization in America today. People on the left are shocked and think that what poetic truth is, to call it poetic truth, is a very cynical thing to do. People on the right are much clearer-headed about it, don't believe racism is what killed Michael Brown. Our hope in the film was to say that our real hope for a better America, better race relations, is in the objective truth. Then we'll get somewhere, not in the poetic truth. But you're right. The media in America are all excited about the possibility of the poetic truth being really true, that there really is systemic racism in the United States that's still stunting the lives, persecuting black people. There's almost a joy they take in that poetic truth. It could not be farther from the objective truth which is that blacks have never been freer, never had more opportunity. The society has changed. It's not the society of Martin Luther King that was comfortably, smugly racist. America today has made racism the number one unforgivable sin. I'm guessing it would have surprised you to know as you were making the film. Would it have shocked you to know that you would be releasing the movie into the aftermath of national protests and in some cases violent riots? that made the Michael Brown protests look small by comparison? 30 years ago, I did a documentary for Frontline on the murder of a black teenager, Yusuf Hawkins, in Bensonhurst, New York. And it's interesting because you describe that as a very clear-cut act of homicide. Right. This young man and his friends were attacked by a, a group of white kids in Bensonhurst. So the world, I grew up in myself, so I know what it was like. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, as far as they were concerned. Blacks should not be there walking on that street at that time. A fight broke out, gunshot was fired, it killed Yusuf Hawkins. Clearly, there was a racial motive. It was, again, Al Sharpton that sort of discovered this formula for power, that in a society guilty about the way it has treated blacks for four centuries, when you kill a black kid this way, then the moral power, the moral authority goes to the victim and to all the people who have good wishes for the victim. And so an event like this, it's just dripping with power. It furthered the argument that America has still not gotten over its racism. And so I can take the killing of Yusuf Hawkins or the killing of Michael Brown, and I can go into my job and I can say, um, we don't have enough diversity here. We don't have enough inclusion here. This society is racially sick, and we've got to heal it. You've got to begin to change your institution to pursue those goals. So it's not about Michael Brown. It's not about Yusuf Hawkins. It's about the power it gives what we call in America the grievance industry, which is huge, wealthy, and powerful, and it has enormous influence in almost every major American institution, even in the corporate world. It now has tremendous power in reshaping how business is done in the United States. It may seem as though the death of Michael Brown is unrelated to anything else, but it isn't. It's of a fabric of power in America. And now a message from Blinkist, the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best-selling nonfiction books and brings them to you in 15-minute text and audio explainers. 
As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast. But life is busy. Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that. It's a thing. By blinking a podcast using a feature called shortcasts, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness. And like I've told you before, the length of a typical Blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes, about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog. Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. You make the comparison between Al Sharpton and Eric Holder, who, of course, was dispatched by Barack Obama. I think he went personally to Ferguson and very much was identified with the investigation of what happened. He was a judge. He was a lawyer for many years, attorney general. He's a serious person. Do you think it's fair to compare him to someone like Al Sharpton, who I guess just as an observer from outside, I don't see Al Sharpton as a serious person, at least when it comes to policy? I think that they are identical twins. They are exploiters. You know, they're like ambulance chasers. And Eric Holder does it at a higher level. He has the imprimatur of being a government official, but he's scratching and clawing down on the ground for the same raw racial power that Al Sharpton scrambles for. Al is just more open about it, but not much more. Eric Holder is pretty easy to see through that, as we say in the film, he rushes into Ferguson's little suburb of St. Louis, hungry for power, looking, as I said, for racism and for victims. That's all the man wants. The truth is absolutely irrelevant. There were two Justice Department investigations into the Michael Brown shooting. There were two grand jury investigations into the Michael Brown shooting. There was even an FBI investigation. There was not in any of those investigations a shred of evidence indicating that the shooting of Michael Brown had anything to do with racism that there was any racial animus in it. Yet both Holder and Sharpton, Obama along with them, they immediately knew there was power to be had here, profound power, and they set to work to capture it. You have an interesting line in your movie, it comes early, where you say basically that whenever anyone is talking about race in this way, they're talking about power, and that it's hard to find a discussion of race that isn't about power. In terms of the performative aspect, the ambulance chasing that you accuse Sharpton and Eric Holder of, this performative stuff, it goes on on the conservative side of the spectrum too, no? 
that's a fair question. I'm not sure I can answer it very well, but I can certainly say that the political instincts of people who are in open pursuit of power through politics, let's say, lends itself <laughs> to this kind of a cynical exploitation of an event for purposes of power. You are, I think, right to say that both sides do it. I think the following. I think the American left is almost at this point in our history, solely dependent for its power, number one, on morality. That's why, like, here's a case of a black kid being shot and killed by a white cop and so forth. Here's the immorality of racism and the left coming in to say, oh, here we are to save the day. We're innocent. We are standing for innocence of racism. And that innocence that the left keeps clawing for is their power. They have no other source of power. The people on the right, they have much more concrete means to power, much more traditional, having to do with business and resources, natural resources and so forth. And so they're usually very weak ideologically, and the left is very strong ideologically. And the left is, as I've written elsewhere, is a bit exhausted at this point because it doesn't have any real victimization to correct for. Where are black people being held down today? All that's gone. Women now are in every rung of society. All these equity, morality issues are in precipitous decline. And so the left more and more and more relies on poetic truth rather than objective truth. When I was young and growing up in the civil rights movement and Dr. King and so forth, they were up against an evil that everybody could look out your front window and see. Well, today, again, the left... Where is its Jim Crow segregation? Where is this real, big, huge, obvious evil? It's at a deficit. And so, again, poetic power becomes the new thing. And you see everything recast as a moral issue that the left uses then to try to say they're on the side of the good. They're on the side of the moral. They represent the moral authority of America. Before, you talked about Antifa in the same breath as Black Lives Matter, but one thing I notice about Antifa is it's mostly white people. How much of the militancy that you see on display, it's expressed on behalf of black people, but how much of this is white people who enjoy the dramatic street pageantry of protest? Oh, I think it's uh, probably more white than black at this point. I think a lot of black people, you wouldn't know it in the media, but most black people are, are not happy with Black Lives Matter. In terms of Antifa, I think it's the same thing. My phrase for it is the angst of inauthenticity. They're young people. They want to have a big identity. They want to leave their mark on things. Again, they want to revolt, but they have nothing to revolt against. This is the most civilized society in the history of the world. Everything's available to everybody. You can do whatever you want. You can become whatever you want. You can change your mind midstream. You can do something else. Freedom is a much bigger problem than oppression. Antifa, there's something pathetic about them. There's something kind of sad and ironic because we sort of all know that they're lost in delusion. The delusion is the poetic truth. One of the really interesting parts about your film, you talk about the history of Ferguson a little bit. Ferguson was held out as this paradigmatic racist place where you had a majority of blacks who were oppressed, 
the way it was depicted was, well, it's always been like this. You go back and you look at the history of Ferguson and you talk about how, I like this expression, it was a sundowner community, but then it changed. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners what you mean by sundowner community and how the history of Ferguson is a little bit more nuanced than, than was presented? Well, sundowner means that it was a town, if you were black, you had to be out of it by sundown. I grew up in that era, and everybody knew what towns you could drive through on your way home from work and which ones you couldn't. Ferguson was a sundowner town, but then so were most of the towns in North St. Louis area. That, too, is a thing of the past. Ferguson, though, has a very fascinating history. It was the railroads that began to run through this little burg of Ferguson back in the 19th century, and they created a train station there from there, a little community developed and so forth. And it was middle to upper middle class, and it was all white. Blacks had the town next to it. The name escapes me at the moment. And they lived there, and they were servants for the white town of Ferguson. Well, we move into the 20th century, and things evolve and change and so forth. But Ferguson is not a majority uh, white anymore. It's now majority black. I think the number is about 67% black. Middle class, working class. Then, about 15, 20 years ago, Ferguson opened its door to Section 8 housing. Well, boy, that changed everything. Section 8 housing is housing vouchers that the government gives out to welfare people. And so what happened is right away you had this huge infusion into this sort of settled town of all the blacks who were on welfare, had no jobs, broken families, drug use, terrible schools, so forth. A completely different element than what traditional Ferguson was like. Well, that new Section 8 element of Ferguson is where Michael Brown came out of. Even today, it's interesting that the Section 8 housing is isolated off to itself in one part of Ferguson. And again, it's as though the federal government were trying to create a ghetto. They certainly did that. There are some parts of it where people own their own homes, honest, straight-ahead, working-class people. But for the most part, Section 8 is all black and poor and on welfare and has all of the social liabilities that the underclass always has. Broken families, children without fathers, again, terrible schools. So in modern Ferguson, these two worlds have clashed. And so what happened with Michael Brown and that big explosion, the people from middle class Ferguson found themselves targeted internationally as a little burg of hateful, racist white people. Well, nothing could have been farther from the truth. That was a poetic truth. The objective truth was that it was like thousands of other suburbs that built up around large cities. I grew up in Chicago, the town I grew up in, Harvey, Illinois, right off the south side of Chicago, very much like Ferguson, and has been ruined in a sense by the same housing policies. This is a national story. It's not in, in any way localized in Ferguson. This suited the poetic truth, the version, the narrative that serves power on the American left because it says, here's another instance of ugly American racism, Ferguson, Missouri. We are here if the left, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, we are here to save these victims of racism. That is our claim on power is that we will end this kind of treatment of minorities in America. But Ferguson has gotten a very, very raw deal in all of this. You can imagine what it did to housing prices, the stigmatization of owning a home in Ferguson, of running a business in Ferguson. It's been a real struggle for these people, and they took a real hit in their pocketbooks, in the value of their homes. 
for nothing. They were innocent. But the poetic truth was so powerful, so seductive, that Ferguson was sacrificed, in a sense, to the poetic truth. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal. If you're like me, these strange times we live in have featured a lot of cereal consumption. Cereal is comfort food, and there's been a lot that needs comforting. But what if I told you that breakfast cereal, one of the best parts of being a kid when most of us didn't have to worry about fitness and calorie intake, could be great comfort food without all that sugar and carbs? A serving of Magic Spoon comes with no sugar, none, 11 grams of protein, and only 3 net carb grams in each serving. Magic Spoon has been supporting Quillette for a while now, and I've heard from a lot of you about your favorite flavors. You can choose from the best-selling cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors, plus brand new flavors including cinnamon and peanut butter. I've tried all the flavors, except peanut butter, to which I am unfortunately allergic. They taste amazing, almost too good to be true, but the numbers are right there on the box, and those numbers are real. This is not like that Seinfeld episode where they all thought they were eating low-fat frozen yogurt, but they weren't. Go to magicspoon.com quillette to build your own custom variety box and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code QUILLETTE at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. No one has the power to guarantee human happiness, of course, but the upshot is that if you don't like this cereal for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash quillette and use the code QUILLETTE for free shipping. And now, back to our podcast. Your son worked with you on this film. It's interesting because you tell the story about your own parents, and it sounds like you found your own parents' civil rights efforts to be inspiring, but I think you yourself took a different path because of the way the culture moved. I think you regarded something of a dissident essayist because you push back against the dominant mainstream narrative. And yet your own son and you, the fact that you were able to make a movie together suggests that you see the world in at least partially the same way. Has he inherited your worldview or do you two challenge each other in terms of the way you see the world around you? Well, he's my son, so he certainly uh, <laughs> has a good idea of what and why I think as I do. I think we certainly do agree on most fundamental things. And yet he has his own take. He's my sort of eyes and ears, has a broader take on the culture than I do it as somebody who's much older. I listen to him very carefully. He's a grown man in his own right. I'm surprised by the things that he thinks and says uh, all the time. In terms of constructing the film, we talked endlessly, one section at a time. Sometimes we'd agree to disagree. Much of the time we wouldn't. But he is certainly his own man, and I count on that. We challenge each other, but we can be very playful about it. It is truly a film that is the result of our collaboration. Was there stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor because you just couldn't agree on it? No, not that I remember at all. Let me ask you about this thing that happened. I'm not even sure you're aware of it. This thing at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. There was going to be a showing of your film and a discussion. The discussion was cast as, does systemic racism exist? There was a controversy about whether the event should proceed. <laughs> what was interesting about it, and this was covered in the media, there's a website called College Fix that covered the details. There was a guy who on the message boards at uh, the university got really animated about it on the social justice side and wanted the event shut down. He was a white guy. Are you used to white people trying to shut you down in the name of racial social justice? 
I wrote a book called White Guilt. It is common. But, you know, when he wants to shut me down, think of all the brownie points he thinks he's getting with black people. I shut Shelby Steele down. That's how devoted to you as a black person I am. I see your enemies maybe even more clearly than you do. He's an enemy. You watch out for him. <laughs> That's kind of condescending, though. It's certainly condescending. His motivation is to assert and establish his own racial innocence. And he's really saying, look how innocent I am. I'm going to keep this guy from speaking. I'm taking care of you. That's how free of racism I am. You know, white liberals are in this this mindless competition for innocence. Blacks don't know what to do with them half the time. It's, it's like you're more passionate than I am, and I'm black, and you're white. But again, it's, it's a measure of how inauthentic they feel, how without moral authority they feel. And they want to know who they are, and they want to think of themselves as people on the side of the good. What they end up doing is exploiting black people far worse than the segregationists of the South in the era that I grew up in. Others have said, I would take that segregationist any day of the week. He'd call me the N-word, but then he'd leave me alone. My life was still in my own hands. He didn't want my soul. White liberals today, they want to take you over as a black. They want to take your fate and put it in their hands. The segregationists didn't want your fate. He didn't want anything about you. The white liberal is going to try to seduce you, and he's going to try to get you to give him your soul, your agency as an individual human being. White guilt is one of the ugliest, most pernicious social forces. Black people have won. We won our points back in the 60s. We got three civil rights bills. It's against the law to discriminate against us. We're free. White people have lost their innocence. They lost their innocence in the 60s because they had to admit they had oppressed blacks for four centuries. So since that time, they have lived under an accusation of being immoral, of being racist, and being in collusion with the ugly, bigoted America of slavery and Jim Crow and so forth. And they will do anything just go along with any poetic truth in order to get out from under that accusation. That's what white guilt is. It's not real guilt. It's simply the terror of being seen as a racist. That is something that white America at this point simply does not have under control. They will do anything. They'll sell their mother down the river to not be seen as a racist. And if you are seen as a racist, you are extinguished from decent society. Shelby Steele? is an American author, columnist, and documentary filmmaker. His new film is called What Killed Michael Brown and is directed by his filmmaker son, Eli Steele. Mr. Steele, thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.